Announcement. The revolution will not be televised. I repeat, the hemp revolution will not be televised. Welcome to the Hemp Revolution Podcast, the global hotspot for the buzz and the cannabis. Hear the secrets of the green rush from the dreamers who are writing the rules, innovating business, and changing history forever. Immerse yourself with the fascinating stories from the leaders in the hemp health revolution to learn how we are changing the game. Now here's your hosts, James Brinkerhoff and Sonia Gomez. coming to you from Denver, Colorado on another rock star episode of the Hemp Revolution podcast, where we are sharing and telling the real story of cannabis and hemp from the eyes of the entrepreneurs and change makers who are pushing this forward. As always, if you're someone looking for products or information that you can trust to deliver the results you're looking for, check us out at medicalsecrets.com. And if you are a budding entrepreneur or business owner in this space, I'd love to hear your story. Sonia at medicalsecrets.com is where you can find me and I'll be looking forward to connecting. As always, guys, I invite you to like and share this content. Tag five people or someone that you believe is going to get benefit from hearing this incredible episode. We are going to be diving in. You know how I do things. Found yet another badass in this industry who has basically just made his sector of the the, uh, sport or this cannabis craze his bitch. Not kidding. He has been a part of, uh, he's been actually a fearless innovator who is always pushing the boundaries and working to improve upon the status quo, leading a large young plant sale, uh, leading a large young plant sales, marketing and product development team early in his career. Uh, gave Josh a passion for shepherding new ideas. By the way, our guest name today is Josh. (laughs) And that secret's out, uh, cat's out of the bag on that one, guys. Um, His enthusiasm is really what attracted me to him because I could tell that he had um, a real passion for fresh ideas in both ornamental and agricultural sectors of the global plant business. Um, which has made him a driver behind countless new products and programs, which I'll tell you more about in this episode. His experience founding and managing the global supply chain for the global breadfruit young plant tropical agricultural division of Cultivaris, his, his involvement in building out a reliable supply chain for hemp and his years of work with both ornamental plant breeders around the world gave him a pretty strong understanding uh, of the domestic and international supply chains. And with 20 plus years of hands-on experience in retail and wholesale international horticulture, Josh's focus is to build on the acu- build on the accumulated knowledge and experience in the horticulture industry to reliably bring the best hemp varieties to farmers and growers across the country. Um, this is going to be some fun stuff, guys. I've been able to dig pretty invasively into his past and finding out who he is and what he's made of in the professional sector. And you guys are definitely going to want to stick around to hear some of his juicy bits. Um, Put your hands together and help me welcome my good friend, Josh Schneider. How's it going? Hey, Sonia, doing great. In this beautiful San Diego day, uh, from the appropriate social distance from all of our staff and colleagues here at the nursery. 
super nice. I mean, I lived in San Diego for 10 years and a couple things that I know for sure about that. Number one, it's hard to keep people inside because it's just, there's so much to do and it's so close to the beach and there's never an ugly day in San Diego. And (laughs) second is sometimes it's hard to go outside because it's hotter than the freaking, uh, it's hotter than hell down there a lot of the time. So which one is it right now? Is it too beautiful to stay inside or is it too hot to go outside? It is definitely too beautiful to stay inside. Um, our greenhouses, we have seven acres of, of hemp mother stock plant here in Encinitas, California. And so it's in San Diego County, but it's North County right on the coast. So I'm actually looking out the window the Pacific Ocean from our offices. Oh my God, so pretty. I used to live off in Encinitas Boulevard. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we're just we're just off Lucadia. <laughs> nice. I use and then I also lived off of um uh Poinsettia. Oh nice, yes. And that's we're actually interesting story. The reason Poinsettia Boulevard is called Poinsettia is because the Poinsettia was actually developed Tinnitus by the Ecke family, E-C-K-E, hence the Magdalena Ecke YMCA on Saxony. And the Ecke family made the poinsettias into an international crop by having the idea that it could be grown as a, as a colorful houseplant. And they actually got it onto the Tonight Show um, when it flowered in the winter as a Christmas crop. And so the mo- all poinsettias globally became a horticulture crop and everything started here in Encinitas in the 50s. Holy shit. How would you like to be that kid's grandchild, that freaking grandma's grandchild right now? That is like... <laughs> I, I, he actually, we are renting some greenhouse space for our overflow at the former Paul Ecke Ranch uh, down off of Encinitas Boulevard, just a block or so down as it were. And so having come up in ornamental horticulture, Paul Jr., uh, the second generation, was a a friend and colleague who I worked with very early in my career, a very kind and generous man who took a great interest in young people coming up in the industry. And when I first met him, he had walked up to me and looked skeptically at me. Who are you and why are you here? (laughs) Um, Completely overwhelmed and intimidated, but brief conversation, uh, we found some areas of common interest. And he was such a cool guy. He'd find clippings in the newspaper, if this me a little bit, and he would highlight with highlighter pens and, and send them to you in the mail. And so um, it always was a real honor when I would get a clipping in the mail. Um, I started my career back in central Illinois, where up on a farm in Strangely, uh, in Horsher, I started a garden center in um, 1996 when I was 20, 23, and um, ran that garden center and greenhouse for seven years. And then I took a job in Southern California working for the company Proven Winners, um, one of the founding partners of that company, Euro-American, where I was director of sales and marketing, and also ran product development. So that's what got me into working with plant breeders for what is the largest network of ornamental plant producers growing plants from cuttings in the world today. So you're not really that big of a deal. 
No, not at all. I just, <laughs> I'm just, a, I'm just a plant nerd who has ADD, and so a lot of things interest me. My mother once told me that when I was three, she had to ban me from asking why because I just exhausted her. Um, she said it was so important that I learned how to read because then I stopped asking why and started figuring it out for myself. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> my, my daughter is three years old right now and I get two things, why and no. And uh, <laughs> yeah, why I was the firstborn. And, no. and so I, I was the firstborn and I'm the only boy and I have 70 first cousins. My dad is one of 11. So a small family gathering is A, never quiet, and B, never includes fewer than 50 people. <laughs> Thanksgiving, you're all renting out a little. <laughs> it's just impossible for everybody to do something together. It's the beauty of a large family is you don't have to like everybody at once. Yeah, totally. I love it. I love it. I come from a really big family, too. I would just, it, you know... Lucky for us, Greeks and Argentinians just reproduce our <laughs> habits. So <laughs> that's very similar. We were German and it, German and Irish, uh, and so I always joke that in the seedling population of my dad and his siblings, some of the seedling combinations <laughs> combined virtues can be complicated. Yeah, <laughs> uh, issues of rightness and a low boiling point. Yeah, um. <laughs> it's a similar similar scene. There can be like four of us in the room, but it sounds like there's fifty. Whereas like uh -huh. families, there's fifty people in the room, but it sounds like there's four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely. Ours is is a large and chaotic bunch, and everybody's talking at the same time. It's a lot like actually the hemp industry right now, where everybody's yes. talking at the same time, but nobody's really saying very much. <laughs> God, here we go. And the good and the solid kickoff for the win on today's <laughs> episode. I love it. Okay. I, you just gave us a, a little bit of the high level of who you are, a little bit of your background and, and what you're up to right now. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, about uh, Cultivaris. I, I want to know more about like what you guys are doing. What do you specialize in? What makes you different from other companies out there? Well, I Cultivaris, I actually started with with two business partners, um, gosh, uh, 15 years ago. I We had spent, my, my colleague Gary Gruber and I, um, Gary was the person who actually put together and was one of the originators of the Proven Winners Group. And he's an idea guy and, and really my mentor, um, who was a really innovative plant breeder and put together the Proven Winners Network globally, worked with breeders and helped support them. It was really a, an awesome experience to come up with Gary and be able to learn from him. He's, I always tease him that he's the international man of horticulture mystery. Um, he speaks like six or seven languages. And uh, so, you know, like an average American, I speak one. Um, as Spanish, kind of, uh, if I've been drinking. Um, but, uh, what I learned was how, how interconnected international horticulture is and a very few number of people actually, um, guide a lot of what goes on. And so building, building a network of people you can collaborate with was critical and supporting the breeders as much as 
is possible and encouraging them and assisting them in solution criteria, giving them market intelligence. It's how we, we created a, a product development um, machine at Proven Winners. So when we started Cultivaris, we wanted to be able to chase ideas that no one else was really thinking about. Or if people were thinking about, the systems in place would prevent the idea from really catching on because most horticulture is based around production systems. So, you know, kind of along the lines of when you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. Um, I wanted to have more of a horticultural and agricultural think tank. So one of the ideas that I got roped into um, early on when I founded Cultivaris was um, this concept of using the, the technologies and the techniques we had at our disposal from ornamental plants to, to do some work in agriculture. And so we began a crop working with a crop called breadfruit or Articarpus altalus that was made famous with Captain Bly and the mutiny on the bounty. I don't know if you ever remember that story, Sonia. Most people under 40 don't. I do not. Okay. Captain Bly was charged um, as, a, as a captain in the British Navy going to Tahiti, where Captain Cook had discovered the Tahitians some years before, because they had this crop that was just extraordinarily productive and useful for so many parts of their lives. And the British at the time needed to feed the slaves on the sugar plantation in the Caribbean. Sugar at the time had the kind of economic value today that oil has, if that gives you some perspective. Um, and they needed something that would grow and be productive, but wouldn't take up field space. And so breadfruit was native to Tahiti and the South Pacific. And in fact, breadfruit or ulu, U-L-U as they call it in Hawaii, was actually brought to Hawaii by the Polynesians 5,000 years ago in a canoe made of breadfruit wood. And so the long and the short of it is one tree can feed a, 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 a pair of people for half the year for a hundred years calorically. And so my thought was if we could figure out how to scale the propagation of this crop using tissue culture technology, um, this could be hugely important to the world. And so after three or four years of mostly failure as as all good research and development typically is, you've got to fail and learn something from each failure. We cracked it. And so over the last decade, I've traveled to 30 countries. We've planted trees in 52 countries, about a quarter of a million trees, which feed about a million people a day all over the world and their children. And I helped create the market for breadfruit finished products. It's basically a basketball-sized potato that you can make a gluten-free flour out of. And so my idea was poor farmers in the tropics could make money off of wealthy Americans and Europeans who had developed gluten allergies or gluten intolerance. Um, the male flowers from the breadfruit tree contain an oil that's a thousand times more powerful than DEET at repelling insects. The leaves have medicinal benefits. You can make a tea from them and that will reduce hypertension. Uh, starch in the fruit can be used for industrial uses. It's very much like hemp where 
the whole plant is useful and, and valuable. And so it was a modular economic development tool. I mentioned beforehand that I know a lot of epidemiologists. That's because I was working in Liberia during the first Ebola crisis. Um, I was actually one of the last Americans out because I'd been out in the countryside working with my farm groups and was, you know, not getting the, the government wasn't admitting that Ebola was a problem. And so I wasn't worried about it until I ran into somebody in Monrovia who was like, who are you and why are you here? Channeling Paul Leckie's ghost. Um, and when I said I was just working in development, they said, you need to leave now. This Ebola thing is serious. So I've taken, I've, I've had some experiences. I spent two weeks with, at the home of the former president of Nigeria, who's the largest landowner in, in all of Africa, Olasegan Obasanjo. And I've had a great opportunity to work with some just extraordinary people around the world. So uh, watch this space as we expand hemp internationally. Uh, with many of the farmers that we worked with and women's farm cooperatives all over Africa. We're going to be starting a hemp project in Zambia later this year, for instance. I mean, what else? <laughs> the stuff that you're talking about doing is on, is like such a mass skip. How do you even build yourself up to that level? And with all of the stuff that you are finding out about you know, these different phenotypes, like what's your end in mind? What are you, what are you working to do? Well, what I learned in horticulture, because I, I started in horticulture in the mid nineties, um, just as vegetative propagation was coming online. So most of the garden crops were seed produced, but the problem was that the market got bent a little bit backwards where the only thing that mattered was how well the crop grew for the grower. And, and by the, the mid nineties, the, the quality of plants was less based on how well they perform in the garden and more how they perform during production. Like a lot of our fruits and vegetables today. Why do tomatoes have no taste when you buy them in the store? Because they're bred for commercial production. And that includes post-harvest and supply chain issues. And so the only thing they care about anymore is whether the, it looks red when it gets to the end of the road, not whether it has any flavor. Horticulture went through that. And so what Proven Winners did was basically reorder the industry so that how the plant grew for the consumer in their garden was the primary selection criteria. And we bent the production model to the needs of the plant. Well, creating a vegetative production model for billions of plants to be propagated from cuttings had some challenges to it. And probably the greatest challenge, well, certainly the greatest challenge was logistics, but then Federal Express was born. And I'll come back to that in a second. But the second challenge was viral diseases. And so the virus diseases just decimated crops as soon as people started getting these mass mother stock establishments going because we didn't understand how easily viruses are transmitted by insects and more importantly, the organism that does more harm than good usually, the human who touches the plant repeatedly. 
So for instance, anyone who smokes cigarettes carries a virus on their skin called tobacco mosaic virus. And that virus can be spread quite rapidly and easily just by touch or by your clothes touching any solanaceous crop. Solanaceae is the family that tobacco is in and it's the most susceptible. But most other plant families are susceptible to the Tobamo group, as we call it, viruses. So through, through a lot of trial and error, we developed this system that allowed the horticulture industry today to propagate more than maybe 3 billion plants a year from unrooted cuttings. Most of that mother stock is held in Central America for North American ornamental plant needs. And so about a billion and a half cuttings are shipped FedEx from the farms in Costa Rica, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua up into North America, where they land at a young plant producer's facility and are rooted, and then they're shipped on to finished plant growers who grow them into the finished pot and deliver them to retail. That complication and so much handling would simply be impossible without virus-free stock. And so we developed a system for um, using tissue culture to both keep plants free of virus and to eliminate viruses, viroids, phytoplasmas, bacterial and fungal infections. Many, I mean, you, you and I both know how much the cannabis industry has gotten a hard on for tissue culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. You know, there's, there is quite a bit of, people think that they can just throw a seed into the ground and grow it. Um, others think that they can snap a clone and they're off to the races. Um, you know, more advanced people understand that it's a real skill and an art to be able to, you know, first of all, create a phenotype, cultivate it, and then harvest it and sell it, right? The, the whole process is actually a lot more intricate than most people understand. However, um, you're doing something pretty unique and you know something that most other people don't know about the health and vitality of a plant. What does it actually take or what are some of the challenges that are preventing um, you know, success for first-time farmers or even uh, even legacy farmers who find themselves with, you know, root rot or like whatever whatever the challenges can be in cultivation. I don't grow plants, by the way. I'm married to a cultivator. So. <laughs> <laughs> the cobbler's kids go barefoot. Yes, I, yeah. I, I am incredibly familiar with that. Well, I'll tell you, I, one, of the, one of the things that I think is challenging in, in cannabis broadly and hemp um, as well is that you know i there's a lot of bro science out there and there's a lot of opinion based on experience over many years of clandestine growing and so because the culture of, of thc cannabis has been so quiet and um secretive people have had to learn through trial and error um my trial and error is 20 years of shipping 50 million plants a year rooted from tissue cultured cuttings, you, you learn real fast what works and what doesn't, and it affects your bottom line very critically. And so what we do is tissue culture, first of all, is simply a tool. There is no magic um, that, that comes with putting a plant in tissue culture and taking it out. That is especially 
when about 90% of the labs claiming to do tissue culture are doing nodal tissue culture. Nodal tissue culture, or putting a cutting of a plant in vitro, is about as effective as keeping your plants in a 20-gallon aquarium in a terrarium setting. There's no difference, just in form, but not in function. The thing that is useful about tissue culture is the ability to harvest non-vascular tissue via the meristem, the uppermost growing point of the plant. There's a little blob of cells inside there that are unconnected to the rest of the plant. Maybe think of it as like stem cells. And so when that is harvested, it's about, it's smaller than the size of a grain of salt. And so that's harvested in vitro, put in, it's harvested, excised off the upper growing point of the plant and put in a Petri dish where sometimes it grows, hopefully if you're good, and this is a little more of the arts and the science, but once someone gets good at doing meristematic regeneration, you have to run through that process multiple times, and that can often eliminate viruses because they haven't gotten into those cells yet. So we grow those plants on, and we renew our stock multiple times a year from those tissue-cultured plants. And that means we start with what we call a super elite block of mother stock. And what that block of mother stock does is it allows you to take cuttings and establish all of your other mother plants off of those plants from tissue culture so that you know that the plant is starting out clean. Now, of course, we have high level hygiene protocols for working in the greenhouse. Tool sanitation is hugely, hugely, hugely important. But of course, I have a group of ladies who I have worked with for 20 years harvesting cuttings who have this down to a science. And so they, you know, my, our, our, the ladies here at Cultivarist Hemp take between eight and 1,200 cuttings an hour. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, and then um, you sell the starts? Do you sell we the do. starts? So, so we root the young plants. So what I did was, again, I, I built based off what I knew in ornamental horticulture. I've been in cannabis four years now. And what I learned is that some of the, the checkpoints or the choke points really are logistics, logistics, and logistics. And because of the stupidity of our THC cannabis laws, there's lots of duplication. But with hemp, we don't need that. So I have experienced young plant propagators across the U.S. So I ship unrooted cuttings, for instance, to my rooting station in Michigan or my rooting station in Tennessee, and they root the cuttings in a young plant facility that was built for young plant production in ornamentals that is empty this time of year. But these are people I've worked with for 20 years who know what they're doing. They know how to put roots on a plant. They have their own trucks, and they can get the plants to the farmers. So this seemed much more sensible to me than trucking young plants across the country. Um, and so it saves on freight, it saves on damaged plants, and it makes certain, and this is what's really critical about clean stock, it makes certain that the farmers start the season with a crop that is free of all relevant and economically damaging diseases. Because if you start with a clean plant, even if you get infected with the virus, like everybody was all had their dresses up over their heads about beet curly top virus, 
But that wasn't caused by leaf hoppers running through the field. That was dirty material that was held over in the U.S. in states that had a lot of sugar beet production, which meant that during the course of the season, the hemp plants were contaminated, infected with beet curly top virus. And then people held that stock over the winter and did their own propagation off of it. So that meant that they actually started out with plants that were virus infected. And then as soon as they got any stress, the virus manifests. Just like with COVID-19, when you're young and healthy, you're much less susceptible to these diseases. But if you've already, if you're immunocompromised, and that's really what a, a plant infected with a virus is, it's an immunocompromised plant that can be directly damaged. So there's no virus that it can infect your crop in the field that will kill it that same season. And so to me, this is such a critical piece. I tried to look at what I could do to be maximally impactful in the, in the hemp industry. And it was in creating a supply chain of pathogen index, virus-free, well-grown young plants that farmers could trust would do what they said they were, what they were told or what was expected of them over the course of the season. So I took what we learned in ornamental clean stock production from so many virus outbreaks and catastrophic crop dumps, and I, I built on that for the hemp industry. And that's, that's what Cultivarus Hemp does, in addition to educating and, and, and supporting our farmers. Our primary goal is high-quality, pathogen-free young plants. I love it. And how many can you produce at one time? Or how many do you have the capacity for? Like, if a, are you serving primarily, um, you know, small farmers under five acres? Or is it, you know, 10 acres plus? Do you, can you serve 100 acres or more? How does that go? We can. With seven acres of mother stock, um, I can produce 40 to 60 million young plants. Um, this season before the 1st of July. My God. And I mean, that's just so crazy. I, I love it. How, what the, how, what's the difference? Let me ask you this. Cause I, I think a lot of people are buying like bags and bags of seeds and throwing them out there and, you know, wishing for the best. There's also some pretty incredible breeders out there who are, you know, making the same claims. There's incredible brokers out there who have the network of breeders who are doing incredible things. Um, how does young plant versus seed differ? What, you know, what what would you say would be the biggest difference? Well, I, I I'd say that you know, having worked for 20 plus years on plant breeding programs, I've across you know. 50 different genera, 60 different genera. Um, I have never seen trued up parent lines in less than a decade on any crop. And so uh, the, the challenge is in order to have, first of all, the hemp and can the cannabis genome is just a multifaceted, extraordinary thing. And so the diversity genetically behind the plants that we see is so vast, it means it's a blessing and a curse. It means that so many things are possible through breeding that we can't even imagine today. But it also means that because of that diversity 
it's harder to create trued up parent lines. And so if you have not been line breeding, inbreeding your mother lines, your parent lines for 10 years, you're not, at least, you're not going to have really reliable seedling populations. There's still going to be a lot of diversity. And as an example, one of uh, my good friends and colleagues that I just adore um, decided to do some hemp breeding. And so he brought in a, a reputable line of, of hemp from seed. He feminized part of it. And he, now he's sitting on 30 million seeds. Well, I saw the pheno expression on the parent lines, and I wouldn't touch that crop with a 10-foot pole. There's at least 15 different phenos. When they were harvesting seed, at least 20% of the plants were just starting to flower. And so the, the challenge of inconsistent seed is that, A, you, you're going to have crops when people are half-assing it like that in breeding. You can't just self a plant and expect it to produce more like it. And so if I self, for instance, blue dreams and make 20,000 seeds of blue dreams, a, a fairly large percentage of those seedlings will actually express high CBD characteristics. And by the same token, and I'll tell you this as somebody who from, from my I had a friend who made a bunch of cherry wine self and something like 30% of the, the first generation was high THC. So because the crop doesn't breed true to me, unless you're working with a really good seed breeder, who's been doing this for a long time, who's really worked to true up parent lines, it is literally like Forrest Gump box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> he threw that in there. You, just, you have a little secret swag in you, huh? <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I get so frustrated because we were at a, a show in, in Palm Springs and somebody came up and my staff are a little, you know, more reserved than I am. And this guy says, oh, we're going to do, do breeding. And I said, oh, I just interrupted their conversation and said, oh, what, what are you, do you have experience in breeding? How long have you been breeding? Oh, we're just getting started. I said, have you ever bred any plants before? No, but it's super easy. We got a guy who told us what we need to do and we can do at least 10 million seeds. And I said, what are your, where are you getting your genetics? Oh, we just bought some stuff off the internet. And I said, what you're doing is not just wrong and stupid it's going to damage the industry and you're going to get sued because I said this, this is, it is wrong to tell people that you know what's in the bag when you don't. And I, the reason I focus on clonally propagated young plants is because that is the thing in my opinion that is required for the hemp industry to get ahead. Farmers need to not be afraid that a third of the crop is going to be hot. You know, it's the, it's the old dirty, hairy question. And this is, this will be dating myself, but you know, dirty Harry used to say, as he held a gun in somebody's face, do you feel lucky today? And that's what, in my opinion, so much of what's going on in seed breeding with all these amateur breeders that are half-assing it, 
they are gambling with their farmers' lives. And I find that unconscionable. Uh, unconscionable. And, and now everybody's running out because they're so confused by the USDA um, and the delays. People aren't booking a lot yet. Um, and so everybody's cutting their prices. It shows how much they value their crop. But guess what? With all the price cuts, people aren't, they're not selling. And so it, it goes back to, I think it was either John Glenn or one of the other early astronauts said, as I sat here on this multi-ton machine built by the U.S. government, I realized that every part was provided by the lowest bidder. Oh, God, that just gave me chills in my all over everything. <laughs> So, I mean, you know what I mean? You don't, you yeah. don't want, I, 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 I work with farmers all over the world, thousands and thousands of farmers. I grew up in flat and boring central Illinois with lovely people who, um, I, you know, I grew up in a rural farm town that did corn and beans, mainly some livestock, but corn and beans. And so I, I'm unwilling to gamble with someone else's future. And that's what these amateur seed breeders are doing. Uh -huh. And so it's not just about price, it's about value and peace of mind. And so along those lines, I work with a lot of idea-driven people who are developing products that help provide peace of mind for the hemp farmer. So we're looking at, at some other time, we'll talk about some of these exciting products or I'll connect you with the people who have developed them so you can share them with your listeners. But there's so I'm an idea-driven guy. But I believe for the hemp industry to work, it has to be, it has to be functional. The farmers have to have predictability. They have to be able to know what they're going to get. And right now, with a, the majority of the seed that's out there, you don't know what you're going to get. And so you have to ask yourself what it's worth to have peace of mind. That's such a good question. And I think there's... Again, there's so many misconceptions. You're outlining them so so well. Um, so I, I want to ask you a different. I, I want to ask you a different question because you've done a really good job outlining, like, really clearly what the challenges are for the hemp farmer and why you're so deeply connected to that. Um, so let's do a price comparison because there's really like key considerations when you're looking at getting into the industry, deciding whether or not you're going to plant again after your first year or three years in, you're so far in, like, why would you get out now? Right? Like you either have established a good business for yourself or you haven't. So, um, I, I'd love to just discuss the price comparison because you see prices on the internet for hemp seeds from quote unquote, um, you know, good sources and their price their pricing is ranging anywhere from 40 cents to you know a dollar 10 what does a what does a young plant clone cost um and compared to the seed and what's the value of it long term obviously it's the peace of mind but what could that mean you know depending on the size of your farm or you know, if you decide to take a young plant versus a seed, what is the financial um, output that you can expect on the, in the end if you do everything right? I, I think that so much of that depends, but I think some of the factors to consider are, for instance, autoflower. Autoflower, good autoflower seeds are quite reliable. 
because they're, the parent lines have had to be trued up. But I've seen a lot of autoflower that's kind of more autoflower-ish. <laughs> uh, and I find ishness something that in a young industry, it makes people run the other way. I mean, basically, st- what I learned starting out with breadfruit, where the young plants that we sold were $10 a piece, um, but, but for a tree that produces starting in 14 months for 100 years, that's a good bargain. Of course, it's not something that, you know, your average farmer in Africa could afford. But I was told that, you know, only an insane person tries to create a whole new supply chain for a crop that nobody's ever heard of and hasn't been grown anywhere in 200 years other than as a novelty or to feed a bunch of people on a small Pacific island. But so I I got to be kind of an OG in breadfruit and learn what it takes to establish a crop and establish a market for the byproduct. And so that's kind of how I'm approaching hemp. Price is only one consideration. The question is, what does each, what does each thing contribute to your success? So a good seed line for a small farmer that can mod- monitor the crop, you know, you have to think about finding males. Feminization rates range from 90% to 995 or 6%. But how many males you're going to have and herms you're going to have depends on how much you plant. So this is where I call it the Amelia Earhart rule. (laughs) Amelia Earhart, it didn't so much matter that her calculations and instruments were off flying from New York to Washington, D.C. But flying from Tokyo to Honolulu, when your instruments are off, can really screw you. Yeah, as the historical record indicates. So, so if your farm is a New York to DC trip, you can afford a little more chaos because you can monitor it more closely. But how well can a few people monitor 10 or 20 acres of hemp? Especially if you're a first time grower who doesn't know what a male looks like who doesn't know what a herm looks like, who doesn't know what things should look like. So to me, there's gamble number one with the seed. If it's an autoflower crop, it either needs to be sown in the field or it needs to go into a plug and be quickly put into the field. It cannot get root bound or it flowers right away. So the questions are, what are the chances the farmer is going to have delayed planting? Are all the plants coming at the same time? Where are you going to put them? Do you have a way to transport them to the various fields where they need to be planted? Is there a way to water them once they're there? Or is the irrigation all in the field? So that, you know, you got, you got a thousand trays of young plants, either from seed or, pl- or, or cutting, and you don't have any way to water them. You're not going to get them all planted in an hour. And so these are the logistical questions you have to ask yourself. The question is when you're, you're going to pay somebody to germinate your seeds for you, that's going to be a cost. I mean, in ornamental horticulture, it would cost 25 cents, but you know, everybody's taking margin on hemp growers because there's margin available. So the average person's going to pay maybe a dollar to, I knew people who were paying two fifty and $3 per cell per seed to get it germinated last year. Um, on, on the young plant side, so just a quick nomenclature thing. I use the term young plants 
um, I'm a little pedantic about this. The term clone is a scientific term that is a nomenclature term. It is more specific. You know, you have genus, species, variety, then clone. So clone is the most specific. So, so I don't use the term clone as a noun. I use the term young plant or liner. And something, a young plant can be a liner grown from cuttings, or it can be a plug grown from a seed. And so just, you know, housekeeping anal retention. Um, <laughs> a, 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 um, a clonally propagated young plant is a, you, you know what you're getting. It's genetically nearly identical to all the other siblings of, of cuttings in the process. Yes, there's little mutation, but um, you've got a predictability. There's more actual experience with this actual variety. Don't get me started on poor naming uh, protocols in the industry. We're gonna fix that uh, as God is my witness, Miss Scarlet style. Uh, I am going to beat people into doing this right because you can't recreate a cross by just recreating the cross. You can't, what, what simply selfing cherry wine does not make more cherry wine. And that's, that's bullshit bro science that is not true. And this is, I make fun of bros a lot and it's not so much the specific bros as it is the bro mentality or the bro verse. I talk about how we are the Brosetta Stone, um, and and we love these brotastic guys who are so excited about what they're doing. But the problem is with a lot of bro knowledge, it's not that the bros don't know anything; it's just that so much of what they know isn't actually true. And so, the challenge is for people to understand what they're getting in the process and a young plant from a cutting from a cost standpoint. I mean, I've seen people selling them for a buck 50. Um, I would ask, how clean is your stock? How are you virus testing? What are your hygiene protocols? Because those are all things that contribute. I know of one company that did everything from tissue culture and then reinfected everything with virus when they got it out of the lab because they didn't have good hygiene in the greenhouse. They weren't sterilizing tools because the bros are like, yeah, I've never, I've never sterilized my tools in the past and I've never had a problem. Well, I've never socially isolated before and I've never had a problem. Um, <laughs> times they are a change in kids. And what I mentioned on the clean stock side with ornamental plants, what happened was when everybody started doing self-propagation, as vegetative plants became popular, people started holding over stock. And the movement of plants increased the movement of pathogens. Just like when the Spanish settled North America, they brought with them the diseases and the movement back and forth carried diseases more efficiently everywhere. So what, what we have to focus on is looking at risk reduction in the choice of young plants. And so if you've got a high aptitude for risk and a high tolerance for risk, You've got a lot of people that can dig through the fields, making sure there's no boys or herms in the field. Um, and you can manage the, the variability 
that most certainly comes with many or most uh, seed crops of hemp. God bless you. Let your burden be your calling. Go for it. But for people that want more predictability, more consistency and uniformity, who people who aren't um, wanting to gamble with the compliance test coming off of the wrong plant because there's so much variability. Um, I have a friend here in San Diego County who his crop tested at 0.31 and the county ordered destruction, even though the margin of error for the testing lab was substantially lower. Sorry, higher. Um, there was a lot more room. Um, it was the, the lab considered it a passing crop because they round down from 0.35, but the county considered anything over 0.3 a failure. And so with seed crops, it depends on which plant you choose. Um, so I think that, that that price range of like $2 to $6 for a well-grown young plant um, and the $1.25 to $5 for a seed-grown crop, depending on, you know, everybody's all excited about CDG this year because they think it's going to save them from the compliance beast. Um, but, you know, who knows what the CBG market will be like when everybody and their brother is growing it. Well, that's the thing. I was just going to ask you, the, that's the next thing, right? And I believe that... Um... I believe that hemp in particular is going to go through its ingredient sort of mayhem. And we're going to continue to see this hockey stick type growth with each one of these cannabinoids. We're like two and a half in on a list of what, 300 plus. So there's like, I feel like we're going to have a pretty significant, um, like the, the lifespan of this industry is going to be pretty significant. We're going to watch, you know, probably by the third round right now, CBN and CBG are the big ones. Pretty soon it's going to be the plant assets. Once they figure out the best way to use it is juicing. And um, I think, you know, we're going to continue to see this sort of roller coaster ride of um, industry growth and development. What should people be watching out for and how can they get in touch with you if they want to work with you? Well, they can certainly go to my website, cultivarishemp.com. So cultivaris, the name cultivaris comes from the Latin word cultivar, which stands for cultivated variety. It's an abbreviation. Yes, Latin has abbreviations. Um, but it, what it, it basically represents my brain uh, of culture. There's a lot of, there's a lot going on in there. And so when you look for cultivar, just add an is on the end, uh, Google it, and you'll get to one of our websites. Um, but I think that, I think you're exactly right where we're really in, I call it the flavor of the month stage of the industry, where everybody's, everybody got involved because the ridiculous numbers that were being found last year were based on not much available. Then everybody and their brother grew a boatload of CBD, and surprise, the price dropped when the market floods. Um, so then, you know, farmers love to put on the hair shirt and catastrophize. So it's like, oh my God, this is not going to work. Um, I, I think you're going to see, just like you, know, you mentioned, you're going to see a lot of churning through. The key is for people to do the work in advance 
on where their crop is going to go. I don't think anybody should be spec on 10 or 20 acres. Who've got a place for it, or if you're vertically integrated, some guys who have who only did 2,500 plants, but have been kick-ass pre-roll business that um, I know a lot of service industry folks that I'm friends with are jumping on board selling smokable CBD pre-rolls. Um, because right now, if you're in the service industry, what else can you do? Um, but I think that there's also going to be some big changes coming from the supplements industry. I work closely with an organization called APA, which is the American Herbal Products Association. Because of all my plant nerdery, I've been working in supplements for a while, helping people find different plants for research, medicinal use, pharmacopoeia, the study of a culture's medicinal plants. And so the, the APA group has, it's the, it's the scientific backbone of the supplements industry. If the FDA, and it's looking good that they might, if the FDA gets off the dime and categorizes CBD or hemp as a dietary supplement, that will open billions and billions of dollars of purchasing power that is going to suck up every last bit of leftover CBD the moment the FDA gives the green light. The problem is these supplements companies don't want to invest and give shelf space to a product that may be ruled illegal by bureaucratic whim. And so that's part of the reason why I've been engaged in advocacy in D.C. My, the group that we work with helped get the stupid DEA rule knocked back. And we actually helped write the questions that Sonny Perdue got grilled with last week and the week before when he was before the House and Senate where he basically said the DEA had hijacked the whole rulemaking process and he wasn't quite sure why or how, you know, <sighs> generating confidence in the Trump administration's uh, handling of rulemaking at every turn, Christ on a bike. Um, so, so some of these things are necessary. Farmers have to, farmers have to get involved in the political process. They have to pressure the Farm Bureau, they need to pressure their congressmen and senators, and certainly the people at the state and county level. For instance, in California, all hemp policy is basically enforced at the county. You've got 58 agriculture commissioners who report to the county board of supervisors who do all the enforcement. And yet many people were not going to engage with their county supervisors, even though that's like the easiest level to provide pressure and guidance and education to, to help make counties more knowledgeable in their shaping of the rules. So I think that we're going to have to age much more in the regulatory structure to make sure we have something favorable for the industry that still holds people to accountability. But I think especially the USDA and FDA positions really critically matter. And if the FDA, like I said, will categorize this as a dietary supplement, I know many, many supplement companies that are just waiting for that moment to pull the trigger. And so we're working to connect our customers with the people we know in the supplements industry that want to partner with farmers. We want to help connect our customers to people who buy their product before they plant. Because to me, that's what farming should be. It should not be a tractor-based trip to Las Vegas or Atlantic City. I agree. 
I mean, there's literally no rebuttal that I have to that because I think it's really well articulated. And I think that it's really, I I think that it's important for people on all different levels with all different levels of experience to bring in both their questions and their critical thinking, as well as sharing the milestones, you know, and, you know, sharing what their experience has brought them to know about the landscape. Um, I think this industry needs to be collaborative in order for us to yeah. be successful. And yeah. we need to take, you, you can tell how mature that this industry is not. And that's a nice way of saying it, right? We're a very immature industry um, because there is still so much ego wrapped up in it. Yeah. You, know, you can tell folks are desperate. Yep. And in, instead of asking, what can I bring? What value can I bring? The, the operational, opera, uh, you know, modus operandum is what can I get? You know, and yeah. so often is all the question that you feel like you're avoiding, but you know, is definitely the underlining is like, what's in it for me, right? Yep. And so that's really, really tough. And I'm, I'm super excited, you know, and really grateful that, I have had such success with this podcast because in a lot of ways, this podcast, The Hemp Revolution has sort of even leveled the playing field and given an oppor- an opportunity for entrepreneurs and business owners to showcase who they are as people, talk about their brands and businesses, but more so expose who the people are behind the products and brands that we're growing to love and getting to know. And I think it's really important for us to continue to be, again, collaborative and sharing the things that we, you know, what are the challenges? Um, How are they affecting us as business owners? What are the challenges of the industry, but also for me as a business owner? And more importantly, what are these pieces of wisdom or what are the words of wisdom that we can share with one another that allow us to feel that collaborative effort towards excellence in this new industry while we are a self-governing agency or while we are a self-governing industry, we have to be the agents of change and, and set the bar higher than it has been set before so that we can operate at a different level and create an impact that we have not yet seen that this industry as a standalone is capable of producing in multiple, in, in multiple sectors, you know, whether we're the industrial industry or if we're looking at construction or whatever it is, we really have an opportunity if done correctly to change and transform the way that we live in the world. Um, You know, but it's a delicate balance and the longer that ego is just the longer that the ego is disrupting progress, we are going to continue to see problems. I think. I, I agree a hundred percent. This is this is why uh, you you need a follow up podcast for the the uh, Broverse on psilocybin. Uh, we need we need more ego death. Uh, <laughs> um, Hashtag ego death. <laughs> yes, I mean it's I, I I agree, and I mean I I just I'm so excited at the potential, and and you know I get potential is what excites me, and in, in any new sector or idea, but I, I think that the industry has, farmers by nature are collaborative. They're not secretive. They, they, the coffee shop in the morning, I worked in politics and when you want to meet farmers, you go to the coffee shops in the morning, um, early because that's where they are telling stories, talking about problems they're having, listening to people that have ideas or solutions. And I think one of the, if you'll indulge me in one more little, um, axiom i tell my farmers 
that I'm going to spray them down with propellants um, when they buy plants. Because you are more classically cliche than I. I I just I. I had so many farmers this last year who got nervous, feeling like they didn't know enough. And so they brought in a bro who didn't know shit. Some of these guys couldn't have found their ass with two hands and a map. Um, And they ruined the crop. Stupid, stupid things like spraying sulfur to deal with russet mites. Stop listening to somebody who's grown in a garage and call a company that specializes in this. And so what does spraying sulfur do? Maybe it has minor anti-feedance benefits, so minor as to be statistically negligible. However, what it certainly does is it keeps you from being able to use a horticultural oil for at least three weeks. And so that kind of stupidity where they paid 10 grand to have some jackass come in and give them all this counterintuitive advice And then it actually did damage to their crop. And so uh, one of the things that I think is so valuable about what you're doing and people like Tad Hussey and others, um, Suzanne Wainwright, Evan, uh, the bug lady, one of my favorites. um, These are people that are providing solid, real, scientific, and data-driven information sources for farmers. And this is so important because the broverse also needs this. They, you know, I, most of the bros that I work with, they want to learn what we know in scaled production. They want to learn what the farmers know. And so my most effective and successful farmers and bros are the ones that work together where you've got, you know, a farmer who knows agronomics and process and scheduling and accounting and a bro that knows the plant and what it looks like when it's happy and what the pests and disease issues are, it's not always great at treating them. Um, but I think this is the key is we've got to share our knowledge and information because a rising tide lifts all boats. And we cannot afford to be out floating on the lake trying to shoot everybody else's boat down. We've got to work together and make sure that we're doing this right and learning from each other's mistakes. Making mistakes is not a problem. It's making the same mistake over and over again that begins to leave people wondering if you're nuts. Um, and that's as an industry, we've got to, to raise the bar and constantly be seeking to improve and look for innovators to get behind, but also be willing to stop and help our neighbor or friend along and share what we know. And so that's kind of my approach. I you know, know enough to be dangerous about a lot of stuff. But I know a lot about production agriculture, and that's what I'm trying to do right now. And Cultivaris is building a platform of agricultural innovation on a foundation of hemp. There are other crops that I think will grow beautifully with hemp, and we're looking at doing some work in some of those as well. I want to make hemp the super crop that adds value to everybody who touches it. And I think that, you know, we are like... This is like 1776, and we're the founding fathers and mothers of this new industry. And we need to be mindful of the historical moment we're in, and we need to be mindful of the responsibility and obligations that sits on our shoulders today to get this right for the future of the industry. Uh, Mic drop. 
<laughs> mic drop, and furthermore, there's nothing more. <laughs> so well said. Really, really, really well said. And I'm really enjoying our conversation. Can't wait to make everybody jealous with our collaboration because that's going to happen. Sorry, not sorry. And <laughs> um, yeah, when can I come in? Oh, post corona craze. Only thing that changes, I just said this, but I'm going to say it again. It's my new saying, and I'm going to fucking put it on the t shirt and a hat, both. Okay. The only thing that changes more often than the cannabis industry is the Corona industry. <laughs> it yes. is really crazy how, how this, I mean, it's such a strange um, situation and it, it creates such a strange feeling of impending doom. And, and that is so, I, I was thinking about this weekend, my daughter and I were out doing some work in the in the garden and we were talking about this and i said you know it's such a strange vibe right now of darkness but i said i'm working in this industry that's so full of potential and excitement and pent-up desire to get going again um and so the juxtaposition of that that dark cloud of coronavirus hanging over us with you know raining question marks down on what's next i think we really have to you know i i it's rare that i yeah it's it's rare that i uh miss an opportunity to quote a bible verse in a in a speech just because i uh think the the bible has some beautifully written passages and um i grew up in a very religious family and so uh we spent a lot of time in the summers translating hebrew Greek, Aramaic. Um, so our minds would quote, stay sharp, according to my dad. But there's the, there's the adage, I think, from the Psalms, what's or Proverbs, whatsoever things are true and of good report, think on those things. And that's, that's how I've been kind of coping. I get out into the greenhouse. And like I said, we've got seven acres of mother plants. So you can go soak up the sun and the plant smells and their happiness and growth. And I try and talk more about the, the possibilities in the market and what we're going to do once we get past this. And I don't mean to de-emphasize or denigrate how critically important it is for people to, to behave and protect themselves and their loved ones. But I think that once this passes, we are on the cusp of an absolute tidal wave of innovation and agricultural profitability that we have not seen in 100 years. So I'm certainly excited about that. Can't help but congratulate you for the incredible business that you have right now and the impact that you're making for both farmers and the customers, right? Better phenos each equal better product in the end. So I appreciate that very much. And, you know, since you're not really that big of a deal in the world, I don't really have to say much more about you. No, <laughs> no, no, seriously. It's a real honor to have you on the show. And I'm, I'm again, grateful for the work that you have done and are doing in the world. It shows up everywhere and, and most of us get to take advantage of it. So um, I appreciate that and serious about the opportunity to collaborate. I think it's going to be a good one. And um, I always allude to stuff like that. Some of my best joint ventures and some of my best, um, business partners and best friends are coming out of this podcast. So rock on to the friends and family and the medical secrets community and the hemp revolution um, community. You guys make, you guys make every day worth it. So thank you for following this incredible uh, 
this incredible episode and this incredible journey that we're on here. What are some last words that you have, my friend? Well, I just want to say thank you to you, Sonia, for for uh, allowing me to drop by your your and uh, be part of your family. It's exciting to uh, share what I know and and learn what you have and um, and hear how great it is uh, for you to get get the word out and and your community um, to help educate, inspire, and encourage them. And so. I'm just really grateful to to have the opportunity to talk with you, and I look forward to to figuring out what's next. I think you you have one of my team on again soon, uh, Chance, who's just a fantastic. Uh, he he is uh, one of my favorites uh, in the in the broverse because he speaks bro and science. Um, oh, that's and awesome. <laughs> so, and he's just a great guy who's so much fun to talk to. He's got a lot of experience growing hemp in the field. Um, and he also has cannabis experience. And so, um, that's actually, he's the guy who actually brought us the, the smokable flower program with one of our breeders, Purple Mesa, whose family was the first company to get involved in, in hemp in the U S. Um, and so his, his, uh, good friend, Bo Billings, um, gave us, a group of varieties um, out of his genetic portfolio that are just absolutely gorgeous flower that it has the kind of bag appeal that has been well known and expected on the THC side, but is, is rather rarer on the hemp side. So, you know, programs like that and connections and people like that, I actually met chance through Instagram. So it's an amazing thing when we talk to each other, most of the world today, is either self-selecting for people that exclusively agree with us, especially about politics, or restricted to electronics. And I think that this opportunity to talk and have a conversation and share ideas and um, and knowledge is a, a gift. And I so appreciate being able to be a part of it. So thank you so much for having me. Yes. You're absolutely welcome. Hey guys, those of you who are tuning in, all of the social media handles, websites, and honorable mentions will be listed right here around this episode. Make sure that you check out the websites, follow along with what's going on with Josh. And I will tell you what, guys, I every single time that you, you never cease to amaze me because you guys have liked and shared content just like this one, because you have tagged people that you believe will benefit from hearing this information. We have been able to impact over 200 million people around the world in the last three years. We are quite literally transforming the way that people are thinking about and talking about cannabis hemp in their families and communities. And so I invite you now to like and share this episode and make sure that you tag those people that you are making a difference, that you want to make a difference in their life or how they think about or talk about cannabis in their families and communities. If you're someone looking for products, check us out at medicalsecrets.com for some of our favorite picks. We've pre-vetted everyone listed. And if you are a business owner or budding entrepreneur in this space, I'd love to hear your story. Shoot me an email, sonia at medicalsecrets.com, and I'll be excited to connect. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Sonia Gomez, and this is The Hemp Revolution. We'll see you on our next show, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. We took notes on this episode for you, along with all the links and resources mentioned in the episode. Get them free on the show notes page here at www.medicalsecrets.com.
If you love this show and our content, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really want to help us get the message out there, please rate, review, and tell all your friends. With your help, we can continue to reach the world with our message. And until next time, we hope you join the hemp revolution, and we challenge you to dream big and love the life you live.